Hello, and welcome to The Workflow Show, where you get some workflow therapy whilst listening to discussions on development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer at Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect. Today, you'll be hearing our interview with Eric Basier, Senior Director, Product and Technical Marketing at Quantum. Eric will be helping us guide you through some of the storage and networking technologies behind Storenext, the modern file system offered by Quantum. We'll be discussing storage technologies like NVMe, its performance benefits and advantages, and how well it pairs with networking technologies like RDMA. We'll talk about hybrid cloud and maybe even file systems in the cloud. And we'll cover some use cases for block-level storage versus object storage. And finally, Eric will give us some vision into the future of Storenext by talking about the roadmap for Storenext 7 and beyond. Before we get to that, though, we have a few quick things to ask of our listeners. First, you can reach out to us directly with questions and thoughts on anything at workflowshow at chessa.com. We're also trying to get to know you better, so let us know how you found out about the Workflow Show. You can reach out over email or at chessapro on Twitter. And if you enjoy listening to the Workflow Show, then listen up. We've leveled up our content production schedule, which means more episodes, more guests, and more workflow therapy. So please subscribe to the podcast so you know when the next game is on. Before we start our discussion with Eric today, I wanted to call out some previous episodes that cover some of the same information that we are going to talk about today, but maybe in a little bit more depth. Uh, I wouldn't call them prerequisites for listening to this episode, but they do give you some more in-depth information on some of the subject matter. So the first one would be number 27, NAS versus SAN Made Clear. It's actually one of our most popular episodes where we sort of compare and contrast the difference between a SAN and a NAS. Uh, the next one would be number 33, File Systems and Beyond. Our guest there was Brian Suma, our senior systems engineer. We talked to him about what a file system is and how they interact with systems, workstations, servers, etc. And last but not least would be the episodes from part two of our five-part media and entertainment basics series. So those episode numbers would be 49 and 50. All right, and without further ado, let's get into our topic. I'd like to introduce our guest, Eric Basier, Senior Director, Product and Technical Marketing at Quantum. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Jason and Ben. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So we talked in our Media and Entertainment Basics series uh, just a few episodes ago about some different storage technologies. And what I'd like to do is just give a brief recap. I want to talk about the newest, latest, and greatest one, the one that everybody's kind of talking about these days, which is NVMe. So, Eric, why don't you give us a, just a high-level overview of what NVMe is and why it's so cool? Yeah, for sure. Uh, NVMe stands for a Non-Volatile Memory Express. It's actually a new protocol for reading and writing data to flash. And, you know, in, in this industry, we're seeing... A lot of our customers deploy this really over the last year and a half for kind of that tier one, you know, production and post-production. We can get more into the technology as we go, but it's orders of magnitude faster than traditional hard drive storage and even SSD. And what we're seeing is as our customers in this space are dealing with more and more high-res content and they have a need to add more VFX, do more rendering, and especially in today's climate, you know, a lot more transcoding, you know, to distribute content over different channels and that. The attributes of NVMe 
and the performance attributes that it has are making it kind of the go-forward choice for that tier one production storage. Right, absolutely. If I remember correctly, NVMe, um, its bus protocol is very different, right? It's connecting through the PCIe bus and it doesn't have a traditional uh, storage controller like SAS or SATA, right? Correct, yeah. Bypasses some of those elements and in some of the legacy kind of storage array architectures, you know, things like a storage controller or a RAID controller can actually be a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And NVMe kind of gets around that. It's it's reading and writing data directly to the, the storage devices. And that's what allows us with our products and others to kind of achieve some of those performance advantages versus, um, you know, most of the current technologies that are deployed out there today. Right. The way I typically like to think of it is instead of, you know, in, in your typical commute, like say, imagine your hard disk is your car and you're driving to work. In your typical commute with a traditional hard drive or even a traditional SSD using a SATA or SAS backplane, there's a couple of stops like Eric was mentioning where we're going through a RAID controller, we're going through a device controller. And if we're driving, that's a car, we're stopping at stop signs and going through, uh, you know, waiting for various traffic. But with NVMe, it's kind of like you have an on-ramp to the highway in your backyard and you just go. Yep. Yeah, right. I, I like the analogy and uh, kind of building on it. I mean, one of the other new technologies that kind of goes hand in hand with NVMe is um, RDMA, mm. which is really more of a networking technology, but there's a strong parallel and the two work in concert. So Ben, with your analogy there, it's kind of like with legacy, kind of more of a TCP IP based protocol. I'll try to think of it. It's almost like you've got a lot of friends in your car, but you're stopping every block just to make sure that they're all there. And, right. and, Are you buckled in? And, uh, you okay, buddy? Yeah. And, uh, you know, with RDMA, what it's allowing our customers to do is achieve very low latencies on an Ethernet-based network, right? I mean, mm-hmm. The, the spot we come to, a lot of our customers are still on a fiber channel SAN. And, you know, where, where customers have that infrastructure, that's great. It's very low latency. But going forward, more and more customers are moving to an Ethernet-based infrastructure. It's less expensive. It's less complex. And using RDMA with NVMe is one of the ways that they're able to do that and still do all the work they need to do and, you know, ingest all the content that they need to do. So those two kind of work in concert and um, we're seeing a lot of good adoption in this space. A lot of interest, uh, even through COVID, actually, a lot of uh, people investing in this tech. For sure. Yeah. Let's just go ahead. Let's just take a quick pause and define what RDMA is just for our listeners. So RDMA stands for Remote Direct Memory Access. And Ben, it's kind of like a mind meld protocol, right? We're fond of calling it that for sure. If you're a Trekkie and you remember our friends, the Vulcans, and they do the Vulcan mind meld, obviously a remote direct memory access, my thoughts to your thoughts, your mind to my mind, or my mind to your mind. You know, in this case, it's my memory buffer to your memory buffer, my data stream to your data stream. RDMA bypasses the CPU. And so it takes a much more direct route and can also bypass that networking layer and TCP IP like Eric was mentioning. So it's wickedly fast and super cool. So it sounds like it really is a good pairing for NVMe because we're sort of bypassing all of the things that, uh, you know, the, the, the switching protocols, as it were, that kind of can slow us down. Yep. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that on the... 
at some point in your storage stack, you're still going to be using TCP IP somewhere. But it just means instead of using those traditional layers on the back end, like RAID controllers that were going a heck of a lot faster through those gates than we would have otherwise. Yeah, it's all about, you know, we're removing bottlenecks in either the network infrastructure or the storage infrastructure. And, you know, Ben, I think you said it, uh, hopefully we get a chance to talk a little bit more about this, but with our Stornex customers, what we're seeing is that, as you said, you know, many users of the data on the storage, they may still use TCP IP or traditional NFS or SMB access. It's fine. Maybe they just need to review low res versions of, of footage and sign off on it. But where you have, you know, colorists working in 8K raw at very high frame rate, mm-hmm. you you get their workstations connected directly to this NVMe storage and, you know, they're just able to produce more um, and the, it is orders of magnitude faster. Now, when you're talking about connecting their workstations directly, are you saying that directly to the back of an F2000 or an F1000, we can just plug in our Ethernet NIC and, you know, our colorist is maybe 25 or 50 or 100 gigabit connected to the back end of the storage? Yeah, I mean, yeah, direct connected can mean different things, but this is also part of the magic of what we do with Stornex, where using our Stornex file system client, they can actually connect their workstation over the network directly to that backend storage. And the underlying protocols of RDMA as well as NVMe, like we talked about, you're bypassing all these other things in that chain that would have been a bottleneck. You're not using a chatty... TCP IP protocol. Right. The network storage looks like local memory from the perspective of your workstation. Now, you need a new NIC to do that, mm-hmm. right? There's new NICs to do that, and you need some switching infrastructure. And so that's part of the investment people are making. But for our product set, at least, we're seeing NVMe deployed both in fiber channel SANs and fiber channel environments, as well as in these new Ethernet-based environments with RDMA and those protocols. Are you seeing a lot of DLC with that? Yeah, it's a mixture of both. It's some kind of direct connection and some kind of through a proxy of some type. So, Gotcha. So then... Yeah. What's DLC? <laughs> DLC is the, uh, what does the D stand for, Eric? I know it's the land client, but... Not distributed, yeah. Distributed. DLC is a Stornex distributed land client. Right. So it's a way that, you know, users can connect to a Stornex file system cluster over the LAN, right? And it's something that, you know, I think we probably haven't talked about enough as a company. It's one of the things that makes Stornex very unique. And it's one of the reasons that the file system is so widely used in media production and post-production. Right, because it gives you some of those benefits um, that you traditionally get with a fiber channel SAN, meaning that we're talking at a block level. And uh, for those of you who um, are new to Quantum and Storenext, Storenext is the file system, which is a block-level storage area network, wickedly fast, probably one of the fastest file systems in the world. It's a clustered file system, so multiple RAID array, multiple storage chassis are all available, sitting on your desktop, all humming together, hundreds of hard drives or um, dozens of NVMe drives, or both all together as one, sitting there as one icon that might go somewhere like 25 gigabytes per second, which is light speed. Right. And that's the key there is that it's that single namespace, that single volume on your desktop that you'd be working off of. 
in a production environment. Um, there are many other very, very fast file system types out there that can scale out like you can with Storenext. They just do it in different ways. Yep. Uh, you may end up adding separate volumes, you know, things like that. So, um, so DLC, it's a piece of software that is either part of your OS in the case of a Mac, or it's a piece of software that you would install for Windows or Linux. Um, and it allows you to access the block level storage over the Ethernet switching. And Ethernet is a little bit cheaper than fiber channel in these days, maybe even a little bit faster. Yep. Yeah, the way I think about it is, and it's maybe not 100% technically accurate, but, you know, I think everybody is familiar with an NFS client or an SMB client because it's just built into the OS. For sure. And right. those clients use TCP IP as kind of the one of the underlying protocols they use to send data between a works, you know, workstation and storage. And it's great for most types of data, but it's got overhead it's hard to get really low latencies with that stack of things. Our alternative would be we use a Stornext file system client. We also support NFS and SMB because people need that too. But for the really high speed work, the really low latency work, we would use our file system client. And then in the case of what we've been talking about, we're using an, a flavor of RDMA to send the data back and forth. We're using the NVMe as the storage and the very high speed flash storage. And so it's just, it's a much more efficient kind of stack or chain. And it's why we can achieve the streaming performances of, you know, 25 gig a second and upward. Actually, we're going to improve on that again this quarter. And uh, I think hopefully say definitively, we are the fastest file system on the planet by a long shot. So maybe that can be our next uh, workflow show. There we go. That sounds good. (laughs) Right. So um, along with NVMe, Obviously, the physical footprint of a volume like that, by way of comparison to traditional hard disk drives, is radically different, right? So um, if we had a fiber channel SAN, right, and we wanted to reach 20 gigabytes worth of performance, we might have something like, I don't know, uh, four of the QXS 484s, um, and that would take up 20U of rack space to provide that kind of storage versus something like an F2000 with 24 NVMe drives that would give us 25 gigs of performance, and then it would maybe be, what, like 2U? Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's one of the other benefits of NVMe. This is one of the other reasons that we're seeing companies in media invest in NVMe, right? So recapping a little bit, the first is just that everyone is dealing with more high-resolution content. For sure. Right? Mm-hmm. More 4K, more 8K, and at high frame rate. And they're typically ingesting it raw, and then they, you know, we create proxies and, you know, do different things. But one of the initial customers of ours that deployed NVMe, they upgraded their entire editing environment to all NVMe, 100% NVMe. Hmm. And you don't have to do that. We're going to talk about some things that are new in Stornax and that, that allow people to kind of mix NVMe and hard drive storage. So you can kind of think about, you know, our customers can kind of deploy a little pool of NVMe storage you know, maybe for their colorists or for their, you know, high-end editors or something, but keep the bulk of their production day on on hard disk, which is less expensive. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this customer upgraded their entire production storage environment, and they were able to reduce their storage footprint from 
three full racks of hard drive storage to 14U of <laughs> NVMe uh, storage servers, right? Wow. So that was seven of our F, F2000 series. But, you know, when I'm out talking to customers and partners, there's almost this initial perception where people are like, yeah, I love NVMe, but it's just too expensive for me. Right. And what we're finding is it actually is driving some cost savings and business line benefits in other areas that really offset that, right? I mean, one of them is reducing that data center space. Yep. The correlated one is think of the power and cooling savings For that sure. are associated with that, right? Yep. And it's maybe worth double clicking on a little bit too, Ben, so the audience understands that the reason that that customer had so many racks of disk was that they needed a very large number of spindles to achieve the performance that they needed to do their work. And because of the performance advantages of NVMe, everything we've been talking about, they were able to shrink that footprint by, you know, whatever that is, 80%. Yeah, yeah. And that's power and cooling savings. It's rack space savings. And that's expensive. You know, data center real estate can be expensive. So, you know, we we could talk about some of the other things like reducing fiber channel port counts, right? Which has yep. a real you know, concrete cost savings or, or maybe moving away from fiber channel altogether. Yep, right, uh, right. Let alone just the increase in productivity that it can drive for customers' workflows and customers' media pipelines. I mean, you have your creative teams can get their work done faster. You know, if you're a post house, you're completing projects faster, you can take on more projects, you know. So, I mean, these are... Even kind of through COVID, these are some of the reasons why we're seeing such interest in NVMe. It just has a really good value proposition. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's yeah, great. That total cost of ownership or TCO goes way down when you're dealing with a whole lot less uh, power and cooling, as well mm-hmm. as things like your support contracts, right? Because if you've got four raids to deal with as opposed to 20 raids, the yearly upkeep on that is a whole lot lower. So there's a hidden benefit too to consider. Yeah, that's something that we should just make sure we call out specifically. If listeners, if you're pricing out an NVMe storage solution, think about those things that might go away and that TCO. Like we said, that rack space, that heating and cooling. I'm sorry, cooling mainly. <laughs> and uh, and then that support contract cost. So just keep that in mind. Right. When While we're playing the acronym game, I know we've thrown out TCPIP a bunch over the last couple of minutes, so we should probably define that too. We're always up for making sure people know what the heck we're talking about because you might, Absolutely. you may be an IT expert, you might be a video editor, who knows, right? Um, however you came here, thanks for spending time with us. So TCPIP is Transmission Control Protocol or Internet Protocol, and that's how um, how we're talking together over the internet right now, or how we search for uh, all those great cat memes, or even watch great videos and um, enjoy Netflix like we do on a daily basis. Yeah, basically that backbone of communication that we are all used to seeing is all TCPIP based. Right. And Eric had mentioned when we were talking a little bit using our CAR acronym about checking to make sure everybody was belted in, TCPIP in terms of a, a protocol, its job is to make sure that those data packets arrive from point A to point B. So if the path or the street is not 100% clear, 
and it runs into you know bumps in the road and it has to slow down or in multiple hops across the internet that's when we can drop frames you know if we're talking about a video editing workflow or when we're watching each other on zoom and our uh, video and audio starts to get garbled or we're watching netflix and the quality goes down that's why largely in part because the protocol was created back in the what uh early 70s, maybe a little bit earlier, largely in part to make sure that our allies in Europe were still there after a nuclear war. The idea is to make sure that those data packets go from point A to point B successfully and so that we can make sure that the information gets there. It's not about speed at all. So using it in places where we expect to have a lot of speed, we have to make sure that all of the conditions are perfect, meaning that we haven't a switch where we've got gobs and gobs of bandwidth. And if we need buffering in that switch to make sure that packets aren't lost between the storage and your workstation, that all of that happens. And anyway, I digress. Let's talk about more. (laughs) Well, I guess we should talk about the F-series a little bit, right? Yeah. So Quantum has two models of that F-series storage, um, Eric, right? The F-2000 and F-1000. And they're both a little bit different. Performance is kind of the same. The F-2000s may be a little bit faster on writes. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so first off, we introduced the Stornext F-series last year at NAB. Um, So it's been out in market uh, almost a year and a half now. Very strong adoption. Uh, almost all of it in media production and post-production, but um, we're now starting to see it being deployed outside of the media and entertainment space. We can talk about that more, but yeah, the initial product we introduced was an F2000. Uh, it's a 2U NVMe server designed to be deployed as part of a Stornext file system, two controllers, failover, kind of high availability, everything. And, and a good example of you know one of the initial customers there, like I said, they upgraded and they upgraded their entire editing environment to these boxes, you know, so they're seeing great results, very happy. And as we got into the market, we were starting to hear from customers and partners that they said, you know, Hey, I love the value proposition of MBME. Um, I don't always need it to be the most highly available uh, device. Like, so we have some customers where they, this is another great real world example where they were doing a, a large, multi-node render job on a Stornext file system with a bunch of disk. And it was taking them almost a day to complete the render job. And they put in a little bit of NVMe, same render job gets done in 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, just, just, because NVMe just, is so much just sprinkle on a little NVMe and <laughs> right. your, your and, job is and, reduced by 23 and a half hours. <laughs> right. And, and in, this, in this particular case, that uh, this was a, a post house, you know, they're not rendering 24-7. I mean, you guys know sometimes people are using the cloud to do burst render and some of this stuff. But for them, they're like, look, it doesn't need to be highly available, but I'd love to just put a little bit of NVMe in my environment, get that boost, see that benefit. And so right at the start of this year, we introduced the F1000. Um, uses the same software that's on our F2000. It's just a lower cost, one use server, 10 NVMe drives. And the... Entry point of that is about, oh gosh, I don't remember exactly. I want to say it's about 35 to 40 terabytes. You know, it's not much. So we're now seeing a lot of customers that are, you know, just purchasing one of these and they kind of almost put it 
in front of their current storage environment, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. if their current disk-based storage or SSD storage is their tier one, call this a little tier tier zero, right? And they, you know, they they give it to their colorists or they give it to their editors that are working in 8K or they use it for render jobs. And it just gives them a, a boost for whatever step in their workflow they need. So... I love it. Yeah, we've got the two models. We're going to be enhancing them again toward the later part of uh, this year with new software enhancements that actually speed up performance even more. So we've been really pleased with the adoption so far. Now, speaking of software, one of the things that makes this possible, right, because we still need some traditional data protection services like RAID and trying to make it highly available, you know, in the case of the F2000. So there is a software defined layer or a layer of virtualization that happens on top of that, that you guys have really kind of jumped into and are kind of working in both the present and the future of storage topologies. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, this was actually one of the things that we did just kind of almost under the covers in the last year and a half. But we talked earlier about how, you know, dedicated RAID controllers, some of those things can be bottlenecks and more the legacy architecture, but you still do need that data protection. So we developed our own software-defined block storage stack. Uh, We actually made a very small acquisition about a little over, coming up on two years ago, integrated some technology and some people, and then built our own software-defined block storage stack based on that. And the the first place that that came to market was with the F series. Uh, so we use that as kind of that underlying block stack. And then we use it with a different product line we have focused on video surveillance. And when we think about where we're going with Stornax, we are moving to a totally software-defined architecture for Stornax. And this was one of the technical building blocks or stair steps that we needed to get there. And so you're actually going to see that in the future of Stornax when we go to Stornax 7 and beyond that we're moving to software to find everything. So. Yeah. I mean, that seems like uh, yeah, it's very much been the present in a lot of the more advanced big data cloud workflows that we see. But seeing that it's coming to... Um, something that we might use in M&E and start to trust in environments like that is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Frankly, one of the things that makes it unique is, um, you know, this is a little technical, but if you think about most of the storage arrays that are out there, they were designed for enterprise IT workloads, mm-hmm. right? They, mm-hmm. they were designed to run a database really fast. And they have a bunch of really fantastic data services that were built for those type of data sets. But this has allowed us to build a block storage software that was really optimized for this type of industry where it's really about streaming performance. For sure. I mean, things like mm-hmm. compression, things like dedupe. I mean, these little data services that go in the code stream, we don't care about that here. We've, we've stripped all that away. Right. We have a very, very fast block stack, and it's why we can achieve the performance that we can achieve. Right. We just, so it's allowed us to kind of design something that I think is more specific to this, uh, this industry. Right. It's got to be a flamethrower. Right. <laughs> yep. I mean, other good use cases for NVMe might be something like high-frequency trading or genomic sciences, anywhere we need to crunch a ton of numbers as fast as humanly possible, right? Mm-hmm. And we can't have the storage be a bottleneck. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, our our go-to-market with this product is that we sell it with Stornext. I mean, I would think about it that way. So this is NVMe storage for our Stornext file system. And 
Our Stornext file system really excels with big files when people are dealing with big unstructured data. And obviously, media and entertainment industry is a great example of that. The other industries or other types of data where we shine would be things like you know, genomic sequencing data, which is basically a series of very high-resolution images. Right. Um, MRI images, CAT scans, I mean, satellite imagery. When you think about these use cases, it's customers, you know, they have some device that is creating these very large files and it needs to be ingested very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then they need to, they have a stage in their workflow, if you want to think of it that way, where that data needs to be worked on. You have a bunch of very highly paid, highly skilled, creative people that need to collaborate based on that data. They produce some result. In the case of media, you produce a you know, finished copy and you, you distribute it. And then you need to archive it forever, you know, forever. And not, not for seven years for Sarbanes-Oxley, but like forever, right? And those, that pattern, that, that use case is where what we've designed our whole product set for. So one of our customers we were talking about prepping for this workflow show is actually in uh, healthcare research, and they're now using NVMe. They have a repository of over 300 million MRI images and CAT scans, basically medical images. And they're using a GPU cluster now to analyze those images to look for patterns to kind of find cures for diseases and stuff like that. So one of the studies, this always helps me kind of think about it to bring it to life. Pretty interesting. You know, they have um, MRI scans of a bunch of different, let's say, athletes that have had head trauma. So they can look at these scans and they can look for patterns to try to figure out maybe how to make um, helmet design. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Things like that. Just one example. So, So in that case, you know, with NVMe, it's really about the performance that it's able to feed to that GPU cluster. Yeah. Right? And again, it's outside of media and entertainment, but we're, we're starting to see those use cases as well. That was actually something that I really wanted to ask you about. And you, the discussion sort of naturally moved to that, which was, you know, we are very much aware, we, Chessa, are very much aware of the M&E offerings of quantum. It's kind of been one of the things that we've uh, spent lots of time looking at and, and working with you guys on. So I was really interested to know like some of the other industries that you guys work with. And you just mentioned the healthcare uh, MRI space. You mentioned satellite before. Any cool stories there? Uh, Yeah. I mean, in uh, the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the French government, all of their agencies are capturing a massive amount of satellite data to study the planet. The agency over in France is ACRI. They're one of the European space agencies. They're a public case study of ours. But yeah, they're actually using some of that imagery to study the effects of climate change on the planet. And, you know, Stornext has excelled in those types of use cases for many years. And uh, I think that with with Quantum, if you kind of think about the path we're on with our portfolio you know, we added NVMe to be, which we, we think NVMe is the future of production storage, right? I mean, it, that'll be gradual, but like it's already very similar in price to SSD storage arrays. Mm-hmm. So like pretty quickly, production storage is all about NVMe. We acquired the active scale object store business because we think the future of where data is going to live is going to be uh, object storage. And we're going to put tape underneath it because we think that the, where data is going to live for 100 years is probably still tape 
until it's uh, until it's DNA storage, right? So, <laughs> right. so you've kind of mm-hmm. you, you've kind of seen us build this stack of products, which we now have in market. And the use case I described is really applicable in almost every industry. You know, any industry that's dealing with massive unstructured data, we have, I think, the best technology stack for that now in the market, you know, of anybody. So, Eric, you've mentioned that phrase before unstructured data. Why don't you... I was, well, I was, I was going to go there too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially anything that's not in a database, but why don't you go into it a little bit more? You know, if you simply think of the data world, you have structured data, which is something like a database, rows and columns, very searchable, pretty straightforward. Unstructured data is generally file data. And the biggest subset of unstructured data is video and images. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of video and images are for maybe entertainment purposes, but not all. I mean, there's a lot of video that comes off of a drone or satellite or, you know, an autonomous vehicle produces a huge amount of video and video-like data. And that's really our focus. I mean, there's some unstructured data that's things like you know, log files or text files or things like that. that. That's not really where we play, where we hunt. We're really focused on video data, image data, and that is the class of data that is growing much faster than anything else out there. It's harder to manage. It's harder to search. It's harder to extract insight from it. And I'll say this one more time. The thing we're starting to emphasize more is we're finding it has to be kept forever. Right. And maybe not, you know, we're, we're starting to talk about this idea of like a hundred year archive because we've been dealing with this problem in media for, you know, for 20 years. How long do you need to keep the original digital content of Star Wars? Oh, forever. Indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Come on, it's a masterpiece. And, and, <laughs> and it's like, you know, uh, one of our customers, the National Institute of Health Clinical Center that we were talking about, you know, they want to keep those MRI images, those that medical image archive forever, either because of patient reasons or because they want to have a corpus of data that they can mine in the future using AI and ML type of technique, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning type of techniques. For sure. Get new insights and new results. Right. Show me everybody who had this thing wrong with them and let's try and correlate some sort of information to get to a curative response uh, rapidly. Correct. You know, Quantum's a member of the sports video group, and I've been at many panels there. And one of the sayings that I've heard a lot in that industry is they're kind of like, you know, the content in your archive isn't valuable until it is. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. You never know when that's going to be, you know, I mean, um, and so this idea of being able to build these extremely durable, searchable forever archives, you know, that is like what we do. And, and we're seeing more deployments of that. So, you know, it, we're kind of hopping around, but it's like we definitely see that where data is going to work is going to be high-speed file and block on NVMe. Mm-hmm. And where data is going to live is going to be these massively scalable, searchable archives, you know, and, and being able to move data to and from and classify it. I mean, that's kind of where we're, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yep. Us too. All right. So, Eric, thank you for bringing us up to speed on sort of the future of production storage. That's really fascinating. Um, I want to switch the discussion a little bit to going into the object storage and and sort of cloud integration part of uh, where we're going. 
Um, so let's start with that sort of transitional phase of moving files in and out of, of object stores from sort of production through to maybe an on-premise cloud or maybe even just a full-on cloud object storage. Where, where are we going there? Uh, there are a couple different angles to that. I mean, one is we know the future is hybrid cloud and we know the future is going to be multi-cloud. And we already have many customers that are, are doing both. So one of our Stornex customers, a case study that we're working on, not published yet, um, large broadcaster over in, in Europe. And uh, they have a Stornex environment at their main studio, uh, which happens to be in London. You know, they have Avid and they have Adobe editing suites that connect into that. They're using a Google Cloud archive service to house all of their kind of raw content. And they use their asset management software to direct the Stornext file system to move files and move directories between that cloud archive and their on-premise. So they actually, they might bring some raw content back on-premise. They might produce some new material from that, send it out over social channels, and then you know, expire that and kind of leave the the raw content in the cloud, if that makes sense. And yep. we have customers that actually do kind of almost the reverse in different ways where they, you know, they may push some content up to the cloud and then maybe they do a quick render job on something or a quick transcode job and then they just expire it. And I said a lot there, but Stornex for the last several years has had very good integration with both cloud-based object stores as well as on-premise object stores. And, you know, obviously now with quantum active scale, we've got very tight integration with that object store. But, you know, we support AWS S3, we support Glacier, Deep Glacier, Microsoft Azure, Block Blob, Google Cloud, uh, Wasabi, you know, the list goes on and on. But right. so yeah, yeah. We, we have many customers kind of using Stornext as the means to move files and move folders between an on-premise environment in the cloud and back. And we think that increasingly people are going to want to use different services from the different cloud providers because that's a whole nother competitive battlefield. You might want to use the Google render engine, but you might want to use the video indexer from Azure because it's mm, better. You know, and right. Being able to have that choice, that flexibility to move between on-prem and cloud, I mean, we think that Stornex and Quantum kind of being the orchestrator or kind of the engine to help you do that is kind of where a lot of the future is. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, disagree. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about the future being more software defined. And one of the things that we're a big fan of and that we talk about here often, and we will talk about more in detail later, is REST APIs, right? So if... Mm -hmm. If, yeah. if we can talk to even the storage layer and say, hey, give me this or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this, give me this back, right, um, and get more information and share more information at that command level, that just helps us automate everything and make everything that much easier to use, even though it might be a little bit more difficult to set up. Yeah. Imagine if your file system had an API, a REST API that you could send commands to and receive commands from, and that could be integrated in some sort of a automated workflow process. That would be pretty darn cool. Yep. Yep. It's, it's one of the things Stornext, you know, has had for many years, pretty tightly integrated with a lot of the leading asset management software applications out there. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, and then in terms of kind of a RESTful interface or API, that is one of the reasons why our customers in this space are looking at object storage. And storing content in an object format has some advantages. It can be more searchable because the metadata can be embedded within the object. And where you have applications or where you have steps in your workflow that lend themselves to using that type of an S3 interface or RESTful interface, you know, object storage is, is great for that. And that's kind of where we're seeing it. I mean, some workloads still have a file interface, and I think they will for a long time. Uh, some use an object interface, and we can kind of deploy the right solution based on what people are trying to do. Right. Now, it's, it's worth yeah. redefining a little bit. We've talked about object storage uh, in one of the last episodes in the M&E Basics series. It's worth, again, stating that an object storage or something that uh, uses storage buckets, that's they typically call that because it's a flat file system, right? Where we're throwing a bunch of objects or files into a container and then giving them unique identifiers to say, oh, I want this, I want this file back and we've got this hash. So, hey, here's the key. Please give me my file back. Um, one of the recent developments, I think, in Stornex 6.4 is that you guys are adding a little bit more information in and around the object metadata that will make it easier for people to use object storage in the future, right, by allowing us now to, say, also include the file system path in the object data, right? Correct, yeah. With, with Stornex 6.4, we introduced two things related to object storage. Uh, the first is self-describing objects. So hmm. when Stornext moves a file to a cloud-based object store like S3, we're doing that file to object kind of translation, like you mentioned, Ben, right? Yep. And prior to Stornext 6.4, we were able to move objects and store them up in the cloud. But if someone wanted to use that object for some reason, if they wanted to search it or run some service on top of it, they kind of had to bring it back through Stornext first. Right. With self-describing objects, they can now use just off-the-shelf browsers, different scripting tools or whatever to be able to access that content right out of the cloud. They don't need to do that through Stornext. And so for use cases maybe like DR or maybe you know sharing content in some cases, it, it can work. Uh, we'll come back and talk about that more just quickly. The second thing we introduced was we actually improved the way that we can do reads and writes of data to and from an object store. So right. we actually really improved the performance that users can expect for Stornex kind of moving data in and out of an object store. So both related to that, and I think both could apply to either an on-premise object storage system like ActiveScale or public cloud object stores, you know, in a more of a hybrid cloud workflow. For sure. Jason, one of the first things that I thought about, given these self-describing objects, is something like mm -hmm. Iconic, right? Where we've got mm -hmm. a cloud-based MAM that could be a really accessible front end. And so if we had a Storenext SAN in our production environment, but we also wanted to share things front-facing via the MAM, if the MAM could access that same bucket that the file system was moving things into or replicating things into, uh, that would make certain things really easy, wouldn't it? Potentially, yeah. That sounds like a very solutions architecture-y <laughs> yeah. It, it, story there you just told. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. 
And it was a very systems engineer answer. <laughs> it was, yeah, exactly. And that's I mean, and, you know, this this whole topic. Sorry to inter- interject there, a little okay. bit, guys. This whole topic is so top of mind for people with COVID, mm-hmm. right? I mean, of everyone course. is focused on remote online editing, and I think you've seen this in 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 your industries. I mean, COVID has kind of been an accelerant for where the industry was going. It's just that. I think we're going to get there in one year, not 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, yeah. we have we have actually been talking about this for the last few months yep. here on the show about how, how about how fast everything went. Um, Eric, we just uh, we just did an episode in November, December of last year about like the future of cloud editing. Right. And it was outdated in a few months, mm-hmm. <laughs> like completely outdated. We were talking that the episode was very much about what is possible today and, you know, the perception versus the reality and like, when will this be possible? And we kind of just blew that out of the water three months later. <laughs> you got it. So it forced people to get creative. And it, it um, yeah. what our customers have found is, you know, they were forced to set up a studio in the cloud. Right. And yep. now, you know, yes. maybe that wasn't a blockbuster movie, but maybe for their news team. Yep. Right. And they were forced to do it. And guess what? It worked. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we talked about what we did recently with Stornext. And again, it's kind of these building blocks for the roadmap that we're on. I mean, our next step is to bring to market where you can actually set up a studio in the cloud or a, a file system environment in one of these clouds with Stornext. And mm. you know, we actually have that deployed at a couple of customers already, you know, I would say in kind of a kind of a beta. But I mean, they're running Stornext in the cloud. And that'll be something you'll hear more from us, you know, as we go forward on our Stornext roadmap. Because clearly an area of a lot of interest from a lot of people. So Stornext in the cloud. Are we- are we allowed to ask questions? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. If Go ahead, I, ben. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, the imagination wonders, right? Um, if we're spinning up a sand in the cloud, if we've created essentially virtual machines of our metadata controllers and we're, mm-hmm. we're talking to storage layers because in a SAN file system with Storenext, we've got to have a metadata, right? Because the data about the data for the file system, all of the inodes, uh, essentially like the roadmap or the treasure map to where your files live in the file system, that's what makes it so fast. And that's what also protects people from overwriting each other's files is that it, we have this wonderful file system metadata that's got to live in its own little chunk of storage or on a stripe of storage. So, and then we've got the block storage, right? So, so all of these different storage components go into the Stornext file system to make a SAN environment. So in order to be able to press a button and spin up a SAN, which is essentially like the awesome futuristic robot version that we're talking about here, um, everything would have to be living on some sort of a hypervisor and spin up like magic. Tell me. Tell me secrets, Eric. Tell me. Um, the way I'd think about that is a series of stair steps, and I think it'll help point the path for where we're going, right? Okay. We started talking about F-Series, and one of the things we did was we developed our own software-defined block stack. Right. And we've also developed a very basic hypervisor, and we're using that today on some other products that we sell. Now, a hypervisor is what? Um, a hypervisor, think about it as a, a layer of software, a virtualization software that can host multiple guest VMs, mm-hmm. right? And converge those and run them on a single physical server. I didn't say hyper-converge, but let's just say converge. Sure. 
Now we've got all those pieces. You can say, well, okay, it's pretty easy for me to imagine that when we go to a fully software-defined architecture, Stornex 7, we can actually run Stornex along with the block software and all the components we need on a single 2U server, right? And we run Storm. Think about it. We run Stornex in a VM. Right. Earlier, we talked about the F2000, which is a 2U NVMe server. Right. It runs quantum software. It's got two controllers. You can actually envision running an entire Stornex file system on that F2000, one mm -hmm. box. Right. Now that's mm -hmm. for NVMe, and we're going to have other boxes that have hard drives and all that, but that's not too far out. That might be our next workflow show where we talk about this maybe next quarter. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Once you get to that point, it's a pretty easy next step to and say, okay, if I'm running Stornex as a VM on a hypervisor, it's actually not that hard to run it as an AMI in AWS or run it as a VM in Azure. Right. right? And that's, that's kind of the concept, yeah. um, how it's architected, how the MDCs and all that. I, I'm not sure of that yet, but I right. think hopefully that helps give you sort of the path. And for our, the listeners out there, you kind of understand where we're going a little bit technically. And, yep. Um, we'll be making some announcements here. I, I mean, the expectation would be uh, uh, early next quarter. We'll be making some announcements around this. So. Super cool. Awesome. So speaking of the future, and I'm talking about Stornex 7, let's talk about file system pools a little bit. Best of both worlds. What are we looking at there? This is kind of a new data management capability that we're adding in Stornex 7. And uh, it, it was really driven by NVMe, I have to say. I mean, so okay. because we think the you know future of production storage is around NVMe, and we want to enable our customers to take advantage of that, but we don't necessarily want to make everybody have to upgrade their entire production environment to NVMe, right? It's not right. economically kind of viable maybe. And so we, and, and we had a number of customers that said, look, I want to deploy some NVMe in my production tier, but I may want to leave my existing storage investment in place because the storage arrays I have today are fine for 80% of the users, but you know, the 20% really need that performance boost. So, okay, got it. Right. Um, what we developed was a new capability in Stornex that we call file system pools. And there's two components to it. First is it allows a system administrator to define pools of storage within a Stornex file system. So for example, you may define an NVMe pool and you may define a nearline storage pool, right? Or a, a hard disk drives, right? So or hard disk drives, right. right? Yeah, and then you can kind of assign specific users and clients to that using the, the features that are in Stornex. The second component of uh, file system pools is a policy engine that allows an administrator to then, once the pools have kind of been defined, you can then define policies that say, okay, I want to move this file or this directory between these pools of storage. Stornex manages all of that under the covers. So to a user, to an editor, or to a colorist, or a visual effects technician, they don't see this stuff moving around. It just looks like their local drive. But the file system can be moving these this data in the background. So one way that customers are using it today, because we're already, this is deployed in, you know, production and some select accounts is, I, I guess I talked about these examples already. You may have a colorist that needs to finish something and you just promote the files or directories that they need to work on. You promote it up to the NVMe pool, hmm. right? To them, it doesn't look any different. They just get a lot faster performance. Right. When they're done, you can promote it back down. 
Right. Or um, or maybe the ingest operation just always first yep. goes to the NVMe pool because we know it's a new hot thing, a new hot project, and maybe we can set a policy on the back end that says it's been there for a month, nobody's touched it, demote it, right? Yep, and then demote it. Yeah, and and those are all those are examples of policies that administrators can set. You know, you can kick off a job and you know move data, move files or directories. You can use APIs and all that, you know, script it and everything. But you can also set policies based on time, based on certain thresholds and things like that to be able to move between pools of storage. And so, really, what it enables is it enables customers to start to use NVMe, get the benefits of it, and start to build a production storage environment that's, you know, partially NVMe, partially these lower cost types of storage, and then migrate to, you know, the future over time. Mm. So this is great. I mean, this this opens up a lot of possibilities. You mentioned this can be done with REST APIs. I mean, uh, I imagine it could also be done with a GUI and, yeah. uh, you know, other ways too. But with the REST API, uh, that gives us the capability of hooking that into some sort of an automation or orchestration platform uh, or a MAM with that functionality. And, you know, really sort of drive that based on where things are in the process, if we're tracking the process through that project. Exactly right. I mean, yeah, there's there's so much we're doing in, in uh, Stornext 7. There's so much we have going on. You know, we have a new simplified user interface. I mean, it is a, it is a dramatically simplified user interface. Right. And this setting these policies for file system pools, you know, we can show that today. We're, you know, we're demonstrating that today. So... You've got that option. And then, um, yeah, Jason, right on. I mean, this is integrating with asset management applications or other kind of orchestration tools make it really easy to do. And we've got a, a good long heritage of doing that. Actually, we you know we won a technical Emmy for that at the start of the year, which was kind of cool for our contributions in the in the uh, fields of data management. <laughs> um, so that was neat to be recognized that way. But. So that's great. It's worth mentioning, too, that you guys have had a, uh, policy-driven hierarchical storage management layer for a long time in Storage Manager, but this is something completely different, right? Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, how is this uh, how is this different from, say, uh, Storage Manager moving data to uh, the cloud or to tape or maybe an affinity? Yeah, this is something totally different. So Storage Manager was really designed many years ago. And that was really about moving data to tape. Okay. And, you know, that's where we, you know, we've got a lot of customers that still use digital tape for their archives. And it's an important thing of what we do. But we've built on those capabilities over the years to be able to tier data off to different secondary storage targets, you know, and that might be active scale object storage. It might be AWS or Azure. File system pools is really all about moving data within the primary file system. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a different layer. It's a different policy engine as well, actually. And yeah, I mean, the benefits of it are just for simplicity. And it's really all about enabling NVMe, I would say, more than anything else as that go-forward tier of production storage, right? Being able to move data seamlessly between NVMe and hard drives and just boosting performance. And this is going to be something that's part of Storenext, right? It isn't an additional license. It's just going to be a huge value add for customers. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Correct. I think people are going to be yeah, really fantastic. excited about that. One thing I will say, and you know, when we move to Storenext 7, we're moving to a software-defined architecture technically. We're going to move to more of a software-defined business model too. You know, we're actually right. going to be simplifying our licensing and, you know, allowing people to 
consume the software more like they're used to consuming maybe other software applications they do today, you know, as a service and a subscription-based type of thing. So we're going to have some new licensing options that we'll, we'll introduce with Stornex 7. A SAN as a service. God help us. <laughs> yeah, you've said that a couple times now. I, I don't <laughs> refer to Stornex as a SAN. It's a sure. file system. Sure, sure. It's a file yes. system. Right. So, Old school um, sand guys. Yeah, maybe. That's, that's how we got into this game. That's what quantum has always been in the back of my brain. So obviously the Stornex file system is uh, the heart and soul of quantum's business, but you guys do a whole lot more. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's also going back to the cloud conversation. I mean, it's easier to think about. I would never say our plan is to deploy a SAN in the cloud. I mean, maybe, but deploying a file system in the cloud. Yeah, we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And SAN is mm-hmm. a storage area network, right? We still build them these days if people still need wickedly fast block level storage in the case of fiber channel. But I always just think that the the concept of a storage area network, for me, it, it's akin to what we're talking about in terms of hyper-converged you know, storage, right? We have all of these multiple ins and outs and various protocols that we can bring. Just the terminology uh, kind of sets my mind to wondering. So that's kind of what my brain does with that term. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right on. Um, so we talked a little bit about private cloud and active scale. It's probably useful just to talk a little bit about a couple of use cases. We talked a little bit about that in the past in our second episode of the ME Basics series. But in mm-hmm. terms of what you guys are using active scale for, where do you see great user adoption for that product? You know, in, in a kind of a marketeering way of talking about it, we're seeing that High-speed file and block is where data works, and object storage is where data lives. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's also, you could say, it's where data lives and maybe you know lives for a really long time. Almost all of the use cases for active scale that we see, it is a very large-scale content archive. It is a content archive. In media, it's a, it's a content archive. Outside, it may be an, an active archive. And this may be because of Quantum's portfolio, but... Most of the deployments with active scale, we have a Stornex file system cluster in front of it. Sure. Right. So people are using Stornex to, you know, do their work to ingest the content quickly. When they're not actively working on it, we can move data to the object store and it's protected, right? So it's a self-protected object store. And if they need to bring it back, they can bring it back and work on it. And they can also directly access the object store for other things and other reasons. But most of the time what we see is Active scale being a kind of very large scale content repository. Yep, that makes total sense. Um, we we've got yeah, I mean good good adoption in media and entertainment mm-hmm. as a content repository. Um, sports and sports production. A lot of big sports content archives are based on object storage. And then outside of that, it's genomics research and life sciences. Um, we do see you know financial analytics and stuff where it's effectively like a big data lake. You know, yeah, and someone yeah. may be running the analytics on some type of a you know file cluster, but it's a big data lake. And from that regard, we think Active Scale is the best. Uh, it's got some unique technology in terms of how we place data and how we place the erasure codes that just give it the highest levels of durability, highest levels of performance. And um, you know, we have customers managing over 200 petabytes of Active Scale with a single administrator. <laughs> Because it's just the system just takes care of itself. And I don't think there's any other object stores that would say that because 
our software is so intelligent and self-healing and, and, and the way it works. So, you know, that's really where we see it shining is it's like billions and billions of files or objects and um, massive multi-petabyte scale content repositories. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, but having a single object space live across multiple geographies for that kind of bulletproof layer is kind of a good way to think about it too. Yeah, one of the things that makes ActiveScale unique is that we can actually deploy a single object storage system across three geographic sites. Now, not every customer has three sites, but for those that do, the way our software works, you can actually lose one and in some cases, multiple sites and we can still rebuild all your data. I mean, right. that's the magic of the erasure coding software that we do. When you have really, really valuable digital assets, like basically every company, every customer we have in media, the digital assets are their most valuable assets typically of the company. Yep. And they need to be preserved and protected forever. And the best practice would say, keep that data in three places. That's just, it's a best practice. Keep three copies if you want to think of it that way. For sure. Now, when you do that with tape, you've basically today, you know, tape is very low cost, but you've tripled up your tape capacity, right? You put tape in three locations, you've tripled it. And at that point, the TCO actually is a little bit better where you say, use an object store system with software, use erasure coding to spread those objects across the three different sites. And you have a very, very durable kind of protected against disaster archive, you know, and that's really where we see ActiveScale being deployed. We're going to be talking about it a lot more this year. I think for your customers in media, I think everybody should be looking at an object store based media archive Mm. because of its durability. And because of Ben, what you said a couple of times, because of that object interface, it actually makes it easier to search and to index the archive, right? It actually makes it more searchable, more accessible, so that like our customers in sports right now, they've got no new content to show. So they're trying to get stuff back from the archive and repurpose it so they can have things to broadcast, right? <laughs> and I also want to say that working with an object storage interface, even when we're talking about working with, say, a REST API or something like that, to me, as, as a workflow engineer, it's much easier to work with than, say, a piece of middleware that manages a tape library. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yep. Cool. Well... There's another product that you guys have recently acquired that I am really excited about. Now, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Atavium or Atavium. Um, I've heard it pronounced both <laughs> ways, but... Um, yeah, going back to kind of a, a big picture kind of storyline here, we build our own NVMe products or the software to run our own NVMe products. That's about production. We acquire active scale to have the object store software with erasure coding. We obviously have the tape products and, you know, we're going to bring all of that together in a stack to where we've got all the different tiers of storage you would need to build a hundred year archive. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've already got good data management with Stornex to be able to move files and objects between all those tiers. We actually have a very good orchestration engine. The next kind of big challenge is, well, how do you classify all of that data? You know, how, how do you make it searchable? How do you make it browsable? And we were uh, fortunate enough in March, we closed a small acquisition of this Atavium source code. And we actually had a couple of their 
key team members joined Quantum's team. So the one of the co-founders there, a guy by the name of Ed Fury, mm-hmm. he joined Quantum in March. He's the uh, general manager of our Stornex business and our primary storage business. And the thing that Atavium did that I think was very unique was a data classification and tagging engine. Mm-hmm. So when files are ingested, they basically get classified and then they get tagged as they come in. And once you do that, it makes the entire file system or the entire repository much more searchable in a variety of different ways that we've kind of talked about through web services, APIs, or through user interface. You can look at a bunch of statistics and all that. And you can kind of see that you know our intent is to take that technology, integrate that into our Stornex roadmap and bring it to market. And I think this is within the next six to nine months. I mean, maybe six months. I mean, this isn't that far out. This is pretty near term where you can now build a well-classified and tagged archive where we've got the file, the object, the tape, if you want to keep it there forever, and you can kind of search and index everything. And and by the way, even as you're moving data between on-premise and cloud, right? So this idea of kind of providing that seamless bridge from on-prem to cloud, this is another key you know, technology piece that we're able to bolt on and that we're going to integrate into our roadmap. It's super Very exciting. exciting. Yep. You know, you, you guys know, I mean, one of the biggest challenges customers have if they have a, a lot of these unstructured data files on a large scale out NAS platform, you know, if they need to search it, it can take a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, if they need to understand and get insights into what's really happening with their data, that can take a long time. And I, I think that's the next thing we're going to solve with this tech. Yeah, well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, uh, any, any kind of time savings with the ability of getting those tags up front and then being able to search on anything later, that's really where, I mean, that's the kind of thing people are looking for these days. So, yep. yeah, that's pretty that's cool. That's the goal conceptually. I mean, we talked about large amounts of data being ingested into, let's say, mm-hmm. a Stornex file system, right? So, like, imagine that as that's happening, we're tagging that content, and then we can basically classify it a whole bunch of different ways, run analytics on it a whole bunch of different ways. Right. That is kind of the conceptual intent of how we bring those technologies together. So, And I'm thinking that that has really huge implications for... Uh, the sorts of use cases where, you know, this is content that we need to bring in very quickly and just save, you know, uh, in case it needs to be found later for, say, legal proceedings or something like that. So maybe security footage, body cam footage. It sounds like there's a lot of use case there. A lot of good use cases there. And I think when we think about hybrid cloud deployments and multi-cloud deployments, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we you know, we have customers today that have files on premise, they have stuff, they have objects in AWS, and they have a small editing environment in Azure. I mean, we have customers that have that today. When you think about managing that content across multiple clouds, having that data classification engine, and then being able to manage data and move data around and orchestrate it, if you will, based on those tags, like that's what we're obsessed about now. Right. It's gold yeah. because siloing is a thing. Absolutely. Yep. No, that's it's super exciting. I mean, being able to do some of the things that we do with MAM in that we pull as much available metadata out of the files themselves, the file extensions, you know, learning mm-hmm. what type of media it might be upon ingest into a MAM, who created that, right? What the file path is, any relevant metadata in the file path, 
all of that stuff comes from the file system. And if the file system is already aware of it and can feed it forward into the MAM, and then if Storenext file system understands multiple silos, multiple cloud repositories that are self-describing, it just makes the end user's experience so much richer and faster, right? Which is just awesome. Yep. Cool. Yep, very cool. We're, we're very excited about it. And um, yeah, I mean, we're just going to, uh, we're going to just turn up the volume on everything we're, we're doing because, you know, we've made a tremendous amount of progress in the last two years. And uh, I think over the next year, we're really going to pull away from all the competition. I think people will see that. And uh, I think we'll, um, I think we're going to blow people away with, with everything we've got. Sweet. I'm looking forward to being blown away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Not yeah. already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that we've talked about recently in terms of kind of trying to have a regular segment is asking people, you know, kind of what some of their favorite workflows have been or have seen like really helping people, um, as well as kind of what media they have been enjoying. So, Eric, let's ask you that. Like, what's a cool workflow that you've seen recently that really helped someone? You know, the ones that come to mind for me recently are the ways where we've worked with partners such as you guys to help customers set up remote online editing. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, obviously top priority. And, um, you know, that was an area that I didn't know much about. I had to learn very quickly, but we... (laughs) So so say we all. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. But it was really cool for me to talk to customers. I I remember speaking with a few customers specifically, like it was in um, April. And so it was kind of like they had gone through a few weeks of just total crisis mode, right? Like can't get like businesses shut down Mm -hmm. and they were just coming out of it. And I was talking to them about how they had set up remote online editing and they were using virtual desktop technologies to access the workstations that were at the studio with the Stornex client, right? So they'd figured out how to use their existing Stornex infrastructure and use these virtual desktop technologies. There's a whole bunch of them out there. They kind of like encode the pixels on a screen and encrypt them and send them to the home office, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was neat to talk to them to kind of, they were sort of like, hey, we've got it figured out. People are working. We're, you know, we're still doing projects and and now we're kind of cleaning up some things. I guess I really remember those because it was nice to feel like our customers were sort of, coming out of crisis mode and getting back to a little bit of getting back to work kind of. And um, for sure, uh, we're seeing that a little bit more even this quarter that we're starting to see new projects and all that. But yeah, I think those workflows and we worked with partners such as you guys to help design those to get them running. And you know, in some cases, we had to uh, get some new clients deployed and stuff like that. So that was a pretty interesting learning area for me. Agreed. Yep. For us as well, like we said. <laughs> and I, I think related, it's kind of what people are doing in terms of just studio workflows and studio workflows in the cloud. And, yep. you know, we're now working mm-hmm. with a couple of our, I would say a couple of our larger Stornex customers now, but they're using Stornex to run editing suites in the cloud. Seems to be working. And you know, I'm really encouraged by that. We got to figure out how quickly we can bring that to market. But, you know, those two things are both in direct response to COVID and kind of just the industry has just accelerated how quickly they can do that stuff. So awesome. that's been pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. What's some cool media you've been enjoying during the pandemic? My favorite uh, customer of Quantum's is uh, Red Bull Media. Okay. And uh, I've got the Red Bull app on my phone and my little son who is uh, almost four 
uh, he and I love to watch uh, biking and mountain biking videos on Red Bull Media. We do that. Wow. So, you awesome. know, it's on YouTube or on the Red Bull app and we, you know, cast it to our phone. So, I mean, that's, I, I love that. The content's awesome and yeah. you know, I watch it with my little son. So we've been enjoying that. Usually once a night we'll watch a little, you know, 10 minute or five minute uh, little biking video. So cool. I've been enjoying that a lot. Yeah, they do some really cool music stuff, too. I've definitely enjoyed some yeah. of the music content that they've been making. Speaking of which, what's some cool music you've been listening to? Oh, man, I, I, uh, I'm I always listening to new music. I, I'm a big fan of punk rock and heavy metal. So Nice. Um, like what? Uh, oh, gosh, I got to think about some good recent examples of stuff here. Um, that sounds like Kilberg's wheelhouse. Well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Not a metalhead over here. <laughs> I don't have five guitars sitting behind me. <laughs> it's funny with uh so i i subscribe to apple music yep. and you know they just always have new stuff coming out so i'm always kind of just like downloading stuff and listening to it and yep. i kind of just put stuff on shuffle so I'm trying to think of albums that have come out this year that i think have been like really really good have you heard the latest hum album inlet yeah you know i did hear that it was it was good it was uh i actually yeah downloaded that and i listened to that yeah it was pretty good it uh i remember those guys from the 90s yep. or something and Right. I downloaded it again, and I was like, that's cool. Right, Looking yeah. through what I got here. You know, I've been liking this band called White Reaper. I don't know if you guys know those guys. They're kind of, they're not like punk rock. They're just like kind of good rock and roll music. And there's like these young kids, and they got some good stuff that I've been, I hadn't listened to them before. I like them. Nice. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a bunch of new metal stuff that's supposed to be coming out later in the year that I'm looking forward to. But as you guys know, a whole bunch of releases have been delayed for so. sure if you can't tour and do the yep. support for the album you're kind of dead in the water yeah yep. well awesome thank you for sharing yeah this has been great well eric basier senior director product and technical marketing for quantum thanks for joining us eric yeah thank you guys again uh, really appreciate the opportunity and we appreciate having you here this workflow therapy session like all other workflow show episodes is a production of chesapeake systems and more banana productions I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect. Ben also records and edits the show and produces the original music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe in your podcasting app of choice. And please tell a friend or coworker or client about the show. We'd love to hear what you love about the show, too. So email us at workflowshow at chessa.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>